Hey, Future Hindsight listeners. Before we start, I want to tell you about a podcast we've been listening to. It's an economic show from foreign policy called Ones and Twos with this pretty brilliant guy named Adam Twos. He's an FP columnist, history professor, and popular author. Honestly, he's like an encyclopedia about basically everything from the COVID shutdown to climate change to pasta sauce. Join Twos along with FP editor Cameron Abadi as they unpack two numbers each week, one from the headlines and the other from way off the news. Search for Ones and Twos, that's T-O-O-Z-E on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. This season on Future Hindsight, we've been looking at where we stand with the social contract. We started with its origins and have looked at how it manifests in relation to racism, health, and climate. And today, we're talking about taxes, the spark that brings the social contract to life through things like public schools, highways, and social security. The truth is, the United States' tax system needs fixing. The ultra-wealthy basically get to choose whether or not to pay taxes, while everyone else gets stuck with their automated payroll deductions and an April 15th deadline. And this is despite the fact that people across the political spectrum want a fairer tax system. So we're going to try to figure out what's holding us back from a tax system that supports, rather than undermines, the social contract. My guest today is Sarah Christofferson, the Legislative and Policy Director of Americans for Tax Fairness. Sarah has spent her entire career navigating the halls of Washington, so she knows all too well how the federal taxation sausage gets made. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. So you work on tax policy, not necessarily everyone's childhood dream job, but I generally think it's really cool and utterly fascinating. How did you get into this and what motivates you? So probably like most people, my life didn't necessarily follow the path that I had laid out for it. And so I have actually worked on every issue that comes before the federal government, you know, education, immigration, transportation, you name it. I like to rattle off a long list. But tax policy is where I've landed because it's so foundational, right? So part of what you said, it, it funds the rest of what we want to do. It, it really determines what we can do as a society. And so that to me is sort of getting to the core of everything else. And also the one sort of little tangential thing I'll say in addition to that is that I also see it as core to the functioning of our democracy. So you mentioned quite right that there is this sense that the folks in the top, the ones who've benefited the most from the system, are not paying their fair share. And as a result, because so much of that wealth is just untaxed, truly untaxed, you've got folks who can drop a billion dollars in an election and make it up in the course of a week, right? That is... That's not a functioning democracy. That's not a democracy that's going to last for very long when you've got those massive inequalities in wealth. So to me, I ended up in tax policy because I just see it as the as the root kind of, of, of getting to everything else. 
That's a really important point about taxes basically being the foundation for everything we do. But it still seems like there's a lot of mystery around taxation. Can you dispel the most common myths about taxes? So first, let me just say that when we talk about taxes, we do tend to talk about just income taxes and sometimes just federal income taxes. But when you look at all of the taxes that people pay, including state and local taxes, but even federal payroll taxes, right? Like what funds Medicare and Social Security? Everybody pays tax, but the burden actually does fall more on middle-income and low-income families when you look at the entirety of the tax burden, right? Even renters are going to end up paying property tax through rents. So that's kind of the, one of the first myths, is just really stopping and looking at the full scope of of tax and who's contributing and who's not. Um, I will say my property taxes, a much bigger share of my income than Elon Musk's property taxes are of his, right? I think the second myth is because we focus exclusively often in the conversation around federal income tax, you will often hear these very cherry-picked statistics about that, you know, the people at the very top pay a high dollar rate of federal income taxes and failing to look at kind of the broader scope. And then the the third sort of myth, I guess I would say, is exactly what you've touched on, right? And we we even saw this come up (laughs) a couple of years ago when some progressive members of Congress were advocating for much higher marginal income tax rates. And the question came up, I think it was at Davos, and it was kind of laughed off. And even a Washington Post economics reporter laughed it off. And one of the economists on the panel said, well, you know, but actually historically in the United States— the wealthy did pay significantly higher marginal income rates. And even though that wasn't that long ago, people have have been so thoroughly changed by the Reagan revolution, right? Because we still are stuck in that mindset that we must keep slashing and slashing and slashing taxes and that to go up to a higher rate would be socialism instead of just completely consistent with previous decades of American history. And it would be consistent, right? I've read that during the post-war boom, the top tax rate was over 90%. Today, it's fallen by more than half to just 43%. But ever since Reagan, it feels as though taxes have become a dirty word, even if, you know, they pay for our social contract, for education, and caring for older people and roads. But then there's Donald Trump saying paying taxes is for suckers. What do you find when you talk to people? So I do think there is sort of a cultural split between folks in the middle and folks at the very top. Because I would say when you do look at polling opinion data, you find that folks in the middle, of course, they want to pay less. Who doesn't want to pay less in taxes? But there's sort of a grudging, yeah, I know, I got to do my fair share. I got to do my part. You know, I'm playing by the rules I don't love it, but I'm a good guy and I'm, I'm doing my part. And that is very different, I think, from what you do see at not all levels, you know, not everyone who represents the top sort of 0.01%. But there is some of that very real at the top from Donald Trump that paying taxes is for suckers. Now, it could be that the middle class just simply does not have the same opportunities 
to avoid taxation that the very wealthy do. I mean, that is absolutely true, right? If you have an income, your employer is reporting that to the IRS, you're paying taxes on a yearly basis. If you are someone at the extreme top, and I can go into examples if it's helpful, but you know, paying income taxes is voluntary, really, truly. Like Elon Musk can decide whether or not he wants to pay income taxes in a given year. I think maybe some of what I'm attributing to culture is in fact just necessity, that uh, the middle class doesn't have a choice. They are paying their taxes. People at the very top, paying income taxes, federal income taxes, is definitely voluntary. Elon Musk is a great example because we have just seen play out how it's voluntary for him. But it's not exclusive to Elon Musk. It's any of those folks at the very, very, very top. So when you look at opinion polling, you see that there is actually a significant swath of people middle-class and low-income voters, Democrats, independents, and even Republicans who really want to see the folks at the top pay their fair share. So, you know, even Donald Trump, who presented himself as this savvy, smart businessman, in part because he was able to evade taxes, he still had this shtick to his voters of, look, I know these guys are getting away with murder, my tax bill is going to tax them and give you a tax cut. Now, that was obviously a lie, right? We know for a fact that that the benefits of his Trump tax cut were skewed heavily to the very top. But he was savvy enough of a politician to promote it to his own voters as, I'm going to raise taxes on the guys at the top because everybody in the United States, except for the folks at the very top, want the people at the very top to start paying more of their fair share. So in some ways, that mindset has got a very big megaphone, but I'm not sure that it's as pervasive as it sometimes might feel. Like, I'm not sure that the country as a whole is quite as, as far removed from our feeling of civic responsibility. And in fact, you can boost support for government interventions and and measures like the president's Build Back Better Act when you tell people it is paid for by taxing the wealthy and corporations. Like that actually makes people happier about whatever you're proposing. So here I want to pivot slightly to talk about how we spend our tax dollars and how that connects to the social contract. I mean, why is it that I fork over a chunk of money every year and yet there are still children who are hungry in this country, for example? So... I think that is a perfectly legitimate question to ask. You know, what are our tax dollars going to? And part of the problem is we have really structured benefits in this country so that in some ways they are invisible, right? I mean, I was thinking a little bit about Western states who exist because their water is so heavily subsidized by the federal government. But that's not something that they're thinking about on a daily basis. When they're paying their taxes, there's not a little line item in their return that says, and this much money, you know, went towards keeping your drinking water bill lower than it would otherwise be. So thinking about where do my tax dollars go? And so much of it is invisible. It's helping homeowners through a mortgage deduction. It's helping farmers. It's helping keep prices low in grocery stores. But that doesn't mean that we're all spending it correctly, and it doesn't mean that we're all equally benefiting. Yeah. Like you said, it's not uh, immediately obvious. It's not made legible to us every day that uh, our tax dollars subsidize our everyday lives, for example, 
by subsidizing the cost of clean water to your house. To continue on this thread, we recently ended a 20-year war in Afghanistan, so we should see a bunch of money become available for social programs, right? So for budgetary purposes, that money never really existed. I mean, of course, it did exist, and there are two decades of human tragedy to show for it. But as far as the budget was concerned, it didn't. The war funding was part of what they call the Overseas Contingency Operations Account. It's called OCO. So you've got the base defense funding budget, which actually has been subject to defense spending caps for the last decade or so. But then you have the OCO to fund the wars, and that wasn't capped. And that that sort of makes sense on some level, right? In the middle of a war, you don't want your response to be constrained by an arbitrary cap. But on the other hand, you can see how that quickly goes off the rails. So that doesn't mean that voters shouldn't be pushing to put those peace dividends towards transforming our economy, towards ending child poverty, towards making it a system that works for all workers and all families. But that's not necessarily how Congress is thinking about it. In the same way that the rules of the game determine the winner, the congressional budget process is set up in a way that really constrains how members start to even think about these things. Like, they're not thinking of, oh, now we have this extra money we can put towards so-and-so. They're thinking, well, we're still operating under our same budget caps. So it's a little bit of a frustrating answer, and it's going to require voters to push members of Congress to think outside of their boxes. Right, right. That's really frustrating, actually. It's like... As a country, we kept borrowing money from a payday lender to pay for the war, and now we're stuck with a bill. But it's a good segue into my next question, which focuses on tax cuts. Can you explain what happened with federal tax cuts recently and the implications that has for ordinary Americans? So full disclosure is that I was a congressional staffer for 10 years and I worked for Democrats. So, you know, obviously that's my bias and where I'm coming from. But One thing I want to mention sort of quickly about the 2017 tax bill, because I was involved in the fight to prevent this tremendous tax cut. And, you know, it was very disheartening that so many of those members of Congress who claim to care about deficits or, you know, that claim to be budget hawks, right, that they gave themselves a tremendous tax cut. And, you know, you can go through the history of that bill, Bob Corker, John McCain, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, there are a handful of people, members of Congress, who walked out of their yes votes being significantly richer. And I think that has got to play into, you know, understanding of kind of why we are the way we are now and why Republicans were so willing to cut taxes. It wasn't just for their campaign donors. It wasn't just for their friends. It was for themselves. And I think, you know, if we're looking at a big picture, how do we fix Congress? I think it is absolutely devastating when Congress is so overwhelmingly made up of extremely wealthy people who have every incentive to cut their own taxes. And likewise, I work with Congressman Trone from Maryland, who's quite wealthy, and yet he's out there beating the drums to raise his own taxes. I think we have to praise those members of Congress who are making those, you know, those choices that are more consistent with the social contract and are a little less grasping and greedy the way Bob Corker's choices were, in my opinion. 
Well, so this gets us back to the question of taxing billionaires. Ordinary people, like you said, they just get taxed in their salaries. But billionaires don't get taxed until they sell assets like their stocks, you know, have a taxable event. What can we actually do about this? So there are a couple of things. And the one thing I want to say is that, so you're absolutely right, billionaires and the other ultra-wealthy don't have to pay taxes on their capital investments, right, their income gain, their capital investment income, unless they sell. And the beauty of being a billionaire is you never have to sell. So it's coined buy, borrow, die. So Jeff Bezos, he has about $200 billion in Amazon stock, right? His basis, meaning his starting point, was around zero or something like it. And now he's got $200 billion in Amazon stock. So if he were to sell, he would have to pay capital gains, income taxes on the gain. But he doesn't have to sell if, purely hypothetically speaking, he wanted to build his own phallus-shaped rocket and go to suborbital space. He doesn't have to sell to have income. He goes to his own banker and says, hey, can you write me a loan with an extremely low interest rate and just use my massive Amazon stock as collateral. So he never has to sell. You know, he basically lives off of these loans with an extremely low interest rate. He gives himself an $80,000 salary. So his income taxes are basically lower than a nurse's or a teacher's. And then when he dies, that gain, that $200 billion in gain for tax purposes, disappears. So whoever gets that $200 billion in gain, they get it as though it didn't start from zero and it's not $200 billion in gain, but as though it started at 200 and if they sell it for 201, they'd only pay taxes on the one. So you can imagine how a system in which if you accumulate enough wealth to kind of break free of the gravity of taxation that the rest of us operate in, then you never have to sell, you never have to pay taxes, and all of that tremendous wealth gets concentrated for whomever is lucky enough to take it in the next stage, right? It, it's like operating in a different set of rules than the rest of us. The chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, Ron Wyden from Oregon, has proposed a couple of things that would get to the heart of this. So one of them is, the technical name is called mark to market. We like to refer to it as the billionaire's income tax. And it basically says, look, you are using these massive increases in your investments as income, and you're just sort of treating this quirk of the tax system as, as a massive loophole to get around of paying it. So we're going to, every year, look at how much gain has occurred and tax you on the gain. So we're not taxing you on your total wealth, which would distinguish it from a more traditional wealth tax, but we are taxing you on your gain, whether you've sold or not. So your annual gain, you know, every year is a realization event for tax purposes. That provision, the billionaire's income tax, we hope is still very much on the table as part of the president's Build Back Better package. So it didn't make it in the most recent framework, but we're working incredibly hard because it really gets to that question of should income tax be mandatory for the rest of us and voluntary for the ultra-wealthy? And then the other thing would be to 
say that you can no longer just pass your gains on tax-free at death, so closing some of those loopholes. Um, that may or may not happen in this package, but obviously it's something that we will be continuing to fight for going forward so that we are all playing by the same rules. Well, everything you've said just now is super head-spinning, but I have some like technical questions. First of all, does Jeff Bezos really give himself an $8,000 salary? I mean, like, why? Why would he do that? That seems very silly. Yeah, 80000 is his salary. And, you know, it allows him to say that he is taking a salary from the company, but it obviously depresses his income. He and I are more or less in the same tax bracket, despite the fact that, you know... <laughs> <laughs> He's a multi-billionaire. Yeah. Exactly. So in terms of the billionaire tax and marketing to market, so that's between January 1st and December 31st. So basically they just take, you know, uh, the gain of the stock price between January and December from beginning to end and see if there's a gain and then tax them on that, like capital gains tax or like income tax? No, like, cap. well, right. So capital gains, income tax, yes. I, I like to think about it's just changing the timing of when the tax occurs, right? So instead of saying that the tax is going to occur at sale, it just says the tax occurs every year. And people say, well, we don't do that in the United States. I'm like, have you never paid a property tax? Because I guarantee you that I have paid an annual increase, right? Like, come on. Okay. There's one more question I had about this. So I didn't realize that at the at the time of death that when you pass on assets, your assets are valued at current value as opposed to at its initial value when you first acquired it, for example, like Jeff Bezos at around zero. So his children, for example, would inherit Amazon stock at approximately $200 billion. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. They call it stepped-up basis. So your basis, again, being the purchase price, right? And so what they're saying is, Jeff Bezos might have gotten it at zero dollars. That's his basis. His gain is 200 billion. But for his children or whomever he leaves the money to, their new basis is 200 billion dollars. And so wow. they could sell the very next day and have no tax liability and just pocket right. 200 billion dollars. Tell us the difference between capital gains tax and regular income tax uh, and like what the rate difference is. So it's actually a, it's a huge issue for us. It's a huge unfairness issue for us. Ordinary income on your earned, you know, your wages, right? The top marginal rate is 39.6%, but the top rate on your capital gains is only 20%. No, is it 15%? It's changed so much in the last few years that now I'm doubting myself. So actually, you're absolutely right about those capital gains rates you mentioned there are rates of 0, 15, and 20%, depending on your income level and filing status. It's a sizable discount, and there is no economic rationale for that. There is no good reason. Occasionally, you hear people say, well, we have to encourage risk-taking. That's why we need a lower investment income tax than earned income. So, you know, the, the sort of traditional playboy heiress or heir sitting by their pool, their investment gains are being taxed at a significantly lower rate than the earned income of the ER nurse because we want to incentivize risk-taking that, that's, like, absurd on its face, right? So there's this whole host of reasons given for this huge discount on investment income relative to earned income, and when you start pulling on them, none of them make sense. It's just a massive 
loophole or carve out because the folks who benefit the most from it are the ones who have significant influence in Congress. So it was actually in the president's package to equalize those rates so that the top rates for investment income would be the same rate as the top rates for earned income. I'm not sure how much opposition there was to that in the United States Senate, but I know that Kirsten Sinema, the Democrat from Arizona, said she was going to take all of those rate increases off the table. So she was going to completely prevent rate increases that would make the the earned income and the investment income the same. This, you know, really illustrates uh, how messaging makes a difference uh, in getting policies implemented. And in terms of the estate tax, the conservatives changed the name in order to make it sound like it was really a terrible thing to make sure that people actually pay their fair share, you know, when you're passing wealth between generations. What have you found are the messages that are most effective around tax issues? So the one that won't surprise you because it's in our name and I keep saying it is tax fairness, right? That actually really does resonate people. You know, on a visceral level, as human beings, we want fairness. And when we can see that we are doing our part and paying our fair share, and there are these folks who are not, that really makes us angry. And so saying, you know, it doesn't have to be like this, right? We can all pay our fair share is actually extremely potent messaging. And then, you know, in terms of the president's package, reiterating that what the president is doing is not going to raise taxes on middle-income families, on working families, but is going to target those people who up until now have just been getting away with murder. That really changes the discourse. Even among Republican voters, that actually boosts support because people want to see them pay their taxes just because, right? Like, even if it's not going towards these tremendous investments in human resources and human capital and human infrastructure, even Republican voters want Jeff Bezos to pay some damn taxes. (laughs) Yes. One of the things that you mention a lot on the website is progressive tax reform. What exactly is progressive tax reform? Because I think a lot of people don't understand exactly what that means. And how would this affect people like Jeff Bezos. Although I will say in this context, the tax code in the United States is already progressive, correct? I mean, it does get higher as you are richer, except you can can choose not to sell stock. Yes. So I would say the federal earned income tax piece is progressive. And I'm not sure most folks really think about how the income tax brackets work. So they might hear a top marginal rate of 39% and think that it's 39% on your whole income. That's not how it works. So, you know, everybody pays the exact same rate on their first, let's say, $10,000. And then everybody pays the exact same rate on their next $5,000 and so on up the chain. So when you're at the top income bracket, you're only paying that rate on you know, whatever amount of income flows over from the next bracket. And it is, you know, progressive, right? It does take a a bigger and bigger chunk out of the top. Now, there are other parts of the U.S. federal tax code that are arguably regressive. So there is a cap on the payroll contributions that you're making to Social Security. I think it's around 110000 So the first $110,000 
you're paying social security taxes, but everything above that, you are not. So someone who's earning, you know, $50,000 a year, their social security is a bigger chunk of their income than someone who's making $5 million a year. For them, it's a relatively small piece. So that's the one thing I would say is that, yes, the federal income code is progressive. Other parts of the federal tax code aren't. And then that's not even getting into things like excise taxes, right? Like the federal gas tax or the transportation safety tax. That's going to take a bigger chunk out of low incomes than higher incomes. And so when we're advocating for progressivity, I think it's it's looking at the total tax burden and saying it is only right and fair and also good for the economy that you take a larger percentage from the folks who can afford more, right? You know, sometimes people advocate for a flat tax, right? Well, 10% of $100 is $10 worth of food. 10% of a million dollars you can still buy a lot of food, right? Like it's, it just takes a much bigger chunk out of people at the lower end than at the higher ends. And the reason why I want to say it's good for the economy, but there are only so many super yachts and rocket ships that one human being can buy. There are only so many homes. And what our economy depends on is the purchasing power of the middle class. So it really matters significantly more for creating jobs that the middle class and that working families have purchasing power than that some of the folks at the top have one more gold-plated toilet. Thanks for making that very clear. So what are two things everyday people can do to make a difference in this fight for tax fairness? So I think, you know, part of it is really having a good sense. People do have this visceral sense, but it, but it's not necessarily always backed up by data. And so therefore they can be persuaded otherwise um, that the rich have been getting away with murder. I mean, that's, that's okay. I was going to say objectively true. I can't say objectively after having said murder, but they are getting away with <laughs> not paying their taxes, right? Um, that is very much backed up by data. And that we didn't get an economic boost as a result, right? Like the Trump tax cuts were a colossal failure in terms of boosting job growth, boosting the economy. And so I'm a big believer in the place to start is having conversations with your friends and family about, you know, why we pay taxes, what we get from our taxes, who's not paying taxes, who's not contributing, And then, of course, call your members of Congress and tell them you want higher taxes on the ultra-rich. Yes. You know, we're a show on civic engagement, and people are always encouraging you to call your member of Congress, and it really does make a difference. So as we're closing in towards the end here of the interview, looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? So, you know, it's easy to feel really pessimistic about the state of our country because I spend my life working with and for and around Congress, it's it's very easy, given the state of, you know, what's happening in the Republican conference, with the January 6th insurrection, to feel unhappy. But I am hopeful when I think about stepping back from the sort of like the, <laughs> the deep, dark recesses 
that we still do have a country I think we're all committed to saving. And, you know, the social contract is frayed. And I think there are people who've made a lot of money to try and fray it and sever it. But it's still there because we're still fundamentally human beings who do want to be connected to each other. And we want a safety net when we fall. And we don't want to see human misery. And we actually do have a lot of shared values, like I said a million times, around taxation. I'm not a naturally optimistic person, but I, Congress is a representative body, for better or worse. It truly is. Congress responds to what voters want. Now, sometimes that's general election voters, and sometimes that's primary voters, the most extreme voters. But Congress really does respond to the people. And if we can make the voice of the people heard, I think we have a chance. We have a chance. I think we have a chance. I'm hopeful that we have a chance. Sarah Christofferson is the Legislative and Policy Director for Americans for Tax Fairness. Thank you so much for joining me, Sarah. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the chance to come on and talk about this. On the next episode of Future Hindsight, we'll be talking about the social contract and big data. Algorithms determine what we see in our social media feeds and are used in everything from criminal justice to online grocery shopping. So we're going to talk to Dr. Latanya Sweeney of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University and the author of the forthcoming book, In Technology We Trust. That's next time on Future Hindsight. This podcast was produced for Future Hindsight by Sarah Burningham, Reva Goldberg, Zoe Sullivan, and Bart Warshaw of the Cocoon Collective. Zach Travis is our associate producer. Until next time, stay engaged. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.